You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 23 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week we discussed the presidential election of 1860 and Abraham Lincoln's victory on Tuesday, November 6th. As we mentioned last time, Lincoln received only 40% of the popular vote, but he secured 180 electoral votes. At that time, 123 electoral votes were needed to win the presidency. So with the majority of the electoral count, that means even if the entire Democratic vote had gone to any of the other three candidates, Lincoln still would have captured the White House. So Abraham Lincoln might have been a minority president, but he was a legitimate one. No one questioned the legality or constitutionality of the election. And that's an important point considering what happened immediately after the election, so we really want to stress that no one questioned the legality or constitutionality of the election. Abraham Lincoln was fairly elected as the 16th president of the United States of America. And yet, within 23 days of Lincoln's election, five southern states, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Florida, had all authorized the calling of state conventions to debate pulling out of the Union, and Louisiana's legislature was in special session in order to call such a convention. In Texas, only the determined resistance of Governor Sam Houston kept the legislature from calling a secession convention, and not even Houston would be able to check secession fever in Texas forever. Not surprisingly, secession fever ran hottest in South Carolina. Long-time listeners to the podcast will remember that the Palmetto State's calls for disunion ran all the way back to the nullification crisis of 1832. During the months leading up to Election Day 1860, ominous threats of secession had been flowing from South Carolina, and now, after Abraham Lincoln's victory, the state was home to the most passionate and eloquent voices urging disunion. From Charleston, the correspondent of the London Times reported, Quote, there is nothing in all the dark caves of human passion so cruel and deadly as the hatred the South Carolinians profess for the Yankees. End quote. Listeners to the podcast will also recall that South Carolina's fire eaters had been bitterly disappointed back during the national crisis in 1850, when the Nashville Convention had failed to ignite the fires of secession throughout the South. In 1850, at Nashville, South Carolina had sought cooperative, concerted action with other southern states, but the convention had counseled caution and delay. And so now, in 1860, 
the Palmetto State was determined to act alone in secession, in the expectation that other southern states would follow her lead. And so, on November 12th, less than a week after Abraham Lincoln's election, the South Carolina legislature passed a bill calling for the assembling of a state convention that would withdraw South Carolina from the Union. On December 20th, that convention, by a vote of 169 to 0, enacted an, an ordinance that declared, quote, the Union now subsisting between South Carolina and other states under the name the United States of America is hereby dissolved, end quote. In the midst of enthusiastic celebrations featuring marching bands, fireworks displays, militia units, and huge rallies of people waving palmetto flags and shouting slogans of Southern rights, old James Pettigrew, a respected lawyer in Charleston who steadfastly opposed secession, famously remarked that South Carolina was too small to be a republic and too large to be in an insane asylum. James McPherson, in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, explains what happened after South Carolina withdrew from the Union. Quote, As fire eaters had hoped, this bold step triggered a chain reaction by conventions in other lower South states. After the Christmas holidays, celebrated this year with a certain ambivalence toward the teachings of the Prince of Peace, Mississippi adopted a similar ordinance on January 9, 1861, followed by Florida on January 10th, Alabama on January 11th, Georgia on January 19th, Louisiana on January 26th, and Texas on February 1st. Although none of those conventions exhibited the unity of South Carolina's, their average vote in favor of secession was 80%. This figure was probably a fair reflection of white opinion in those six states. Except in Texas, the conventions did not submit their ordinances to the voters for ratification. This led to charges that a disunion conspiracy acted against the will of the people. But in fact, the main reason for non-submission was a desire to avoid delay. The voters had just elected delegates who had made their positions clear in public statements. Another election seemed superfluous. In Texas, the voters endorsed secession by a margin of three to one. There is little reason to believe that the result would have been different in any of the other six states. End quote. Speaking of Texas, Sam Houston was the only governor in any of the seven states to oppose the secessionist in his state. In spite of heavy pressure, he repeatedly obstructed the calling of a state convention. And then when a secession convention was summoned in spite of his opposition, he urged the legislature to deny recognition to the convention. But the legislature snubbed Houston and validated the convention. It did, however, mandate that the convention subject its resolutions to a popular vote. And as we shared with you just a minute ago, in Texas, the voters then endorsed secession by a margin of three to one. And we bring all of that up because Governor Houston shared a prophetic word of warning with his fellow Texans. He said, quote, Let me tell you what is coming. After the sacrifice of countless millions of treasure and hundreds of thousands of lives, you may win Southern independence, but I doubt it. The North is determined to preserve this union. They are not a fiery, impulsive people as you are, for they live in colder climates. 
but when they begin to move in a given direction, they move with the steady momentum and perseverance of a mighty avalanche. End quote. Being a northerner, I must say I've always been kind of touched by Sam Houston's description of the quality of our character, and I've always been kind of amused by his reasoning that it's because we were born and raised in colder climates. And by the way, um, Governor Houston was ultimately removed from office for refusing to take an oath of allegiance to the Confederate States of America. So before Abraham Lincoln even takes office on March 4, 1861, we have seven southern states that have seceded from the Union. Between December 20, 1860 and February 1, 1861, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas all took the drastic step of dissolving their fraternal bonds with the United States. But what was it exactly that led those states to finally take that drastic step? I mean, for years, Southern politicians had been using threats of disunion as political blackmail to bully the North, but they'd never followed through with it before. So what was different this time? That's the question we'll try to answer in the next section of this episode. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. So, what was it exactly that led those seven southern states to secede from the Union? Well, the short answer is that it was because the Republican candidate won the 1860 presidential election. But the answer obviously goes deeper than that, because, let's stress again, those states withdrew from the Union before Abraham Lincoln even had a chance to take the oath of office. 
and no one questioned the legality or constitutionality of the election. And yet seven states considered the result of the fairly won 1860 election sufficient grounds to split apart the nation. To put it rather crudely, what's up with that? The answer to Rich's question, the reason secession fever radiated outward from South Carolina after Abraham Lincoln's election, can be found in the deepest political, social, and economic characteristics of the antebellum South, and those characteristics are rooted in the institution of slavery. You know, we've gone to great lengths on the podcast to provide the historical evidence that shows that with America, slavery was a divisive issue older than the nation itself. I mean, shoot, we've just now hit the six-month mark with this Civil War podcast, and we still haven't got to the war itself. And that's because we thought it was important to very carefully and thoroughly lay out the historical background of the Civil War. And that historical background clearly shows that again and again in our country's history, Slavery was the hot-button issue that could totally put American politics out of joint. Specifically, even going back to the very early years of the nation, it was pretty much always the question of slavery's expansion into new territory that caused crisis after crisis. And on the podcast, we've discussed the different compromises over slavery's expansion that American politicians always managed to hammer out in the midst of those crises. But we also saw that with each of those instances, the politics of compromise were giving way a bit more to the politics of confrontation. And so that brings us to the secession winter of 1860-1861, when the politics of compromise finally gave way fully to the politics of confrontation. And we realized that slavery wasn't the only issue over the years which the North and South disagreed. Sectional stress lines appeared from time to time over disagreements, over interpretations of the Constitution, and over the legality of a Bank of the United States, over federal expenditures for internal improvements, and over a protective tariff. But the historical evidence shows that the most persistent and the most divisive source of stress between North and South was slavery. Over the years leading up to the Civil War, slavery was the issue that shaped the growing divide between North and South, because it not only affected political, social, and economic matters, but it added a significant moral and emotional element as well. Even in the midst of the 1860 presidential campaign, secessionists clearly expressed their intention to act because they believed the election of the Republican candidate represented a threat to slavery. Months before Election Day, Senator Albert G. Brown of Mississippi warned that if the Republicans won, then, quote, the Negro will insist on being treated as an equal, that he shall go to the white man's table and the white man to his, that his son shall marry the white man's daughter and the white man's daughter his son. In short, they shall live on terms of perfect social equality. Then will commence a war of the races, end quote. And after Lincoln's victory, the old fire-eater Edmund Ruffin of Virginia predicted that, quote, This momentous election will serve to show whether these southern states are to remain free or to be politically enslaved. 
whether the institution of Negro slavery on which the social and political existence of the South rest is to be secured by a resistance or abolished in a short time as the certain result of our present submission to Northern domination, end quote. We chose those two particular quotes because they're representative of what was emanating from the South before and after the election. And those two quotes are good illustrations in that there are some interesting things to notice about what they say. Let's take Ruffin's statement first. Notice how he not only mentions the importance of slavery as the foundation of Southern society, but he also talks about the Southern states remaining free or being politically enslaved. And he also uses the phrase submission to Northern domination. And this is a really interesting concept to look at because over and over, if you look at what Southern newspapers and politicians and people are saying before and after the election, you come across the words submit and submission. They vehemently declare again and again that the South will never submit to the North, that the South will never stand for submission to the North, and so on. We found this fascinating, and at first we wondered what the heck they were talking about. But the key to understanding this talk of submission is to realize that in the antebellum South, few words were so loaded with significance because in Southern culture, only slaves submitted. An Alabama congressman hammered this point home when he wrote that he would, quote, rather die a free man than live a slave to the black Republicans, end quote. And the wife of a Georgia slave owner told her son that she hated the prospect of war, but, quote, even that, if it must come, would be preferable to submission to black Republicans, involving as it would all that is horrible, degrading, and ruinous, end quote. Okay, so we have a couple of things tied up in Southerners' fears concerning a Republican administration. On a very basic level, there was the fear of all that is horrible, degrading, and ruinous, which was the fear that the Republicans would eventually force emancipation upon the South and end slavery. That's very bad from a Southerner's point of view, because slavery was not simply a system of labor in the Southern United States. At its heart, the institution of slavery was about racism and the maintenance of white supremacy. But the ugly cancer of slavery spread even beyond that most basic impulse to maintain white supremacy. To put it plainly, the South would never submit to abolitionist Republicans because for the elites, for the movers and shakers of Southern society, slavery was about power. Power over blacks, economic power over poor Southern whites, and political power over the North. Wealthy planters and slave owners were the elite of Southern society. Slavery was immensely profitable in the antebellum South. Historian William E. Dodd calculated that the thousand richest families of the South enjoyed an aggregate annual income of $50 million, while the other 666,000 families received only $10 million more. In the antebellum South, land and slaves were the coin of the realm. Over the years, Southern politicians continually pushed for the expansion of slavery into new territories because they believed that slavery would only remain profitable if it was allowed to spread out into additional areas. That's why slave owners not only cast their eyes westward in the United States, but also made noise over the years about acquiring Cuba and even plotted how to add lands in Central America. 
Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party platform had offered reassurances that Republicans had no desire, indeed they knew they had no constitutional power, to touch slavery where it already existed in the country. But this reassurance was no comfort to Southerners because they knew that a bedrock principle of Republican policy was that slavery ought to expand no further. And really, both the Republicans and the slave owners knew that this policy of containment would eventually, sometime down the road, lead to the death of slavery in the United States. If slavery were not allowed to expand into new territories, it would become less and less profitable, and so would become less and less useful to the southern elite. In other words, the day would eventually come when they would no longer be able to derive their power from it. And we can't forget Senator Brown's dramatic warning about a Republican administration leading to racial equality and a race war. Southerners, all Southerners, were genuinely fearful that Republican abolitionist policies would lead to a bitter and devastating race war throughout the slaveholding states. The Charleston Mercury newspaper editorialized that, quote, the terrors of submission are tenfold greater than the supposed terrors of disunion, end quote. This southern fear of murderous, rebellious blacks was the ugly flip side of their society's reliance on the maintenance of white supremacy. As we pointed out before, white slave owners liked to talk out of one side of their mouth, saying that slavery was a positive good and that their slaves were well cared for and content in their servitude. But then white southerners also lived in mortal fear that their slaves would rise up and murder them in their beds if given half a chance. So... All of these considerations, or all of these concerns, all centered upon slavery, prompted the secessionists to take their states out of the Union during the secession winter of 1860-1861. With the ascension of Lincoln and the Republicans, Southern leaders had to face the reality that political power in the nation's capital was beginning to slip out of their hands. You see, during the previous generation, every president from Andrew Jackson to James Buchanan had either been a southern slaveholder or a northerner with southern sympathies, and southerners had dominated the nation's supreme court. And then up on Capitol Hill, senators from the slaveholding states and their northern allies had always been able to shoot down any hostile legislation. But now, with Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency, southern political leaders believed they could read the handwriting on the wall. They saw a non-southern, an anti-Southern political force was on the rise, and in their eyes, that meant the Southern way of life and the institution it rested upon were under attack. As one New Orleans newspaper editor put it, quote, The Northern people, in electing Mr. Lincoln, have perpetuated a deliberate, cold-blooded insult and outrage upon the people of the slaveholding states, end quote. One northerner who was visiting Alabama at the time of the election said, quote, The cotton states are all on fire. They all agree that the North has become so abolitionized that the South cannot remain any longer in the Union with them. End quote. And in Georgia, Judge Henry L. Benning, for whom Fort Benning in Georgia is named. Okay. Anyway, Benning argued that, quote, The meaning of Mr. Lincoln's election is the abolition of slavery as soon as the Republican Party shall have acquired the strength to abolish it, end quote. So really, this episode has been a long, drawn-out answer to the question, what caused secession? And we believe the historical evidence points to slavery 
as the answer to that question. As Judge Benning's words make clear, with Abraham Lincoln's election, the South felt political power on the national level slipping out of its hands, and with the loss of that political power, there was an implied threat to the institution of slavery. And since the deepest political, social, and economic characteristics of the antebellum South rested upon the institution of slavery, Southerners felt Lincoln's election was a direct threat to the Southern way of life. In light of that threat, Many Southerners feared the worst of a Republican administration, and so that's why even before Abraham Lincoln took office, seven Southern states took the last drastic option they believed they had left, leaving the Union. Just before the election, John J. Crittenden of Kentucky gave a speech in which he denounced the, quote, profound fanaticism of Republicans who think it their duty to destroy the white man in order that the black might be free. The South has come to the conclusion that in case Lincoln should be elected, she could not submit to the consequences, and therefore, to avoid her fate, will secede from the Union. End quote. So, what caused secession? Well, the South's answer back then was very clearly slavery. And so that's our answer, too. And we're sticking to it. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is We Have the War Upon Us, The Onset of the Civil War, November 1860 to April 1861 by William J. Cooper. Although we don't agree with Dr. Cooper's interpretation of Abraham Lincoln's role during the secession winter of 1860-1861, we're still recommending We Have the War Upon Us because the rest of the book is pretty darn good. Cooper does an especially excellent job of detailing Congress's last-ditch, desperate, hopeless efforts to reach yet another compromise and avoid the coming conflict. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And if you're interested in putting faces to our voices, you can find a link on the website to the podcast Facebook page, where, at the suggestion of listener Mark, just today we posted a photo of the two of us. And while you're on Facebook, be sure to like the podcast. We appreciate Mark and all the rest of y'all who have already done that. We also appreciate Spiritwood Music for letting us use their song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of every episode. And thank you to all you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. <laughs> What's so funny about that? <laughs> oh my goodness. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs>